Small Cap Institute presents CEO Corner, where we speak with CEOs who have successfully navigated the growth trajectory from microcap to small cap and beyond. We cover issues like financings, early revenue generation, the pitfalls of capital markets, working with a board of directors, strategic pivots, and just about every other key topic small cap leaders encounter. Today, we're talking with Karen Zatteray from Axigen, Inc. Karen is the chairman, president, and CEO of Axigen, which is a company specifically focused on the science, development, and commercialization of technologies that heal peripheral nerve injuries. Peripheral nerves are the conduit for motor and sensation signals in your body, and when they're injured, you can lose function in your muscles, organs, and even sensory feeling it can initiate pain when pain isn't there. So breast cancer patients who have gone through a mastectomy, people who have had their wisdom teeth removed and have suffered lingual nerve damage and now have difficulty eating, drinking, and talking, nerve damage as a result of car accidents or other trauma, um, that can all be a source of peripheral nerve damage. And Axigen's products have been used in thousands of surgeries at this point, including for surgeries injured in battle, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and their use has expanded from 200 to more than 400 hospitals in the past two years alone. Thank you for being here, Karen. Great. Well, thank you, Amanda. So I think where I want to start is, you know, you've been CEO at this company for nearly 10 years, and before that, you were COO and VP of Sales and Marketing. Can you step back and talk about how you got into this field and how you got to Oxygen and to your role today? I have been in med tech and biotech, all surgical related products for, uh, goodness, many, many years, uh, almost since college. Uh, I have a passion around helping patients with new therapies to, to really change their lives, and I found I could do that in healthcare. And I got a lot of experience at J&J. Um, they were just a wonderful training ground to learn. So everything from I had run a worldwide business unit, um, I'd been in marketing, sales, business development, strategic marketing, um, but also had experiences in product development and manufacturing. So got a nice rounded background in, in healthcare and all the things it takes to both commercialize product and the back end of how you get products to market. So it's a wonderful place to learn. But I really like doing new and different uh, innovations in healthcare. And most of those happen in smaller companies, not so much organically in in the bigger companies. So I decided I would go ahead and leave uh, J&J, although fabulous, fabulous company. Um, But because I wanted to try something smaller and more independent. And so I left. I worked for a while as a consultant. Credibility with the venture capital groups that I would be worth uh, as a risk for them to to bring into a small company to help help run it. And uh, I, I did get introduced to Oxygen. Um, I didn't found Oxygen, but I was the sixth employee. So I joined when, uh, before we even had a lab, to be honest. Uh, so it was more of a concept, some patent application, uh, and some early research done at the university. But I, I saw the tremendous of helping patients in peripheral nerve injury. And, and just saw it as this need. So I was excited to join the company, uh, called my very understanding husband and said, hey, I think we need to move to Florida um, and uh, join this company after I'd met them and decided I would come down and join them. And so that's how I got started. So you were at J&J, you were at Johnson & Johnson for 
more than 10 years. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, it was about 17 years. So was it with the decision to leave Johnson & Johnson at that point and start your own consulting firm? What made you make that leap? Well, I don't think it was difficult for me because maybe how I'm wired, um, I'm not particularly risk adverse. Um, I know I had an awful lot of friends who called me from Johnson Johnson as I was deciding to leave and then announced it. And gosh, what's it like out there away from J&J? Um, and, and I would ask them what's most important. She mentioned pension in their top three things. I told them they should really, hey, you know, that it's a great, great company with about a secure a growth path from a career progression standpoint is I think you can can probably get. And and so it's perfect for the right person. But for me, I get motivated by changing things and really building things. You can see the direct impact of what you do in, in these small and mid-cap companies much more. And that was more motivating to me. So for me, it wasn't a one I, I came to and decided it was the right thing for me, timeline, both for me and Jen Jay, frankly. We worked out a timeline that was that was good for me to go. Um, but I wouldn't say that's right for everyone. Uh, on the other hand, I have a lot of small company people say, should they ever go to a big company? And I, I actually do think it's good to go back and forth. The big company, you get the fundamentals and the training that small companies don't always have the bandwidth to be able to do. So so I appreciate the time I was there, and I certainly learned a tremendous amount. Um, but for me, the small company is where I love, and I, I, I want to stay forever. I don't really want to go back to being at a at J&J. I want to be in these small and mid-cap companies. So what was it about Oxygen? Was it the technology? Was it the people? But definitely both. Um, so, so first was the technology, and I had looked at nerve repair at, at J&J. When I was in business development, one of the things we did was assess new products to bring in uh, and purchase to bring into Johnson & Johnson, and I had done a pretty broad assessment of peripheral nerve repair and had decided that I couldn't really find anything that met the problems that surgeons were facing. So we sort of wrote a report like you do and you put it on the shelf and said, well, this is just something for someday, but we won't, you know, we're not going to go forward in it. And many years later, I see the lab results from what Oxygen had first developed. So again, a very small scale, but this is groundbreakingly different than anything I'd seen and was going to be able to solve this problem that surgeons had in peripheral nerve repair, where when there's a gap between the two nerve ends, they don't really have a way to repair that and what they end up doing is they take a nerve from somewhere else in the body and they transplant it. And that means you always have to lose something to get something, some function back that's more important to you. That's kind of a fundamental problem in medicine is that they're doing harm to fix something else. And, and the first premise of medicine is do no harm. And so when I saw these amazing results for oxygen, uh, this would be a great opportunity to really change healthcare. But but the, the fit in the culture and with the team is, I think, equally important. And so actually that very first dinner, we sat at a restaurant and, and hit it off. And actually, it was a restaurant that had these paper tablecloths, which I wish we'd saved. We drew all over the tablecloth and kind of mapped out the future of the company over dinner. But it was in that dinner that we realized that we just had a like mind about um, both what the potential was, but also we have a very strong data-driven premise that we believe that certain decisions are be uh, grounded solidly in the science and clinical evidence as you want to change healthcare. And uh, and from that dinner, we had a partnership. So it was really just an instant connection in terms of how we would uh, go forward. 
Okay. So when you started at the company, I mean, was your role sales and marketing or was it broader than that, given the fact that the company was small and looking to grow? Yeah, when you're a tiny company, people have titles thing um, because my title was VP of sales and marketing, but I worked in the lab and washed glassware and prepared nerves and <laughs> shipped things. You do whatever you need to do when you're a company of six or eight or 10 people. It isn't about the title. It's about making sure that we achieve our milestones and continue to move forward. We're, we were venture capital based and and so everybody was really focused together on achieving that. So I started with my title as VP of Sales and Marketing, um, but like I said, did everything from our commercialization plans to paying bills and emptying the trash. Um, and then as we grew, took on then uh, Chief Operating Officer and then and then ultimately uh, CEO. It would be great to talk a little bit about how Oxygen became public um, through the merger and why, you know, the company decided to go that route versus, you know, any of the other options on the table. Sure. Uh, So I need to go back and say in the time period this was happening. So we were venture capital backed, received our first venture capital funding in 2006, and we're really ready for our big... um, more commercial product uh, launched to a a selected group of surgeons in 2008, just as the recession hit. And so unfortunately, um, our VCs recognized the recession was going to take a while and decided that they were going to prioritize their funds to their companies that were already commercial, which meant we thought we had commit tranches as we commercialized and there was no money. And so, so we had to do some serious cost cutting during the recession. We basically tightened our belts and said, we're just going to keep our going and we're going to try and build out a proof of principle on very limited capital with a few territories that we set up uh, with sales associates so that we can then show investors in the future that we have a model that will work. So obviously everything about raising money is about reducing risk for the investors. Um, we also brought in some independent agencies and distributors to help us in selected territories where we had clinical studies going. And we managed the company that way for several years. And then towards the end of the recession um, in 2010, we thought we'd seize again and see if we could raise money. And what we found is we were a really interesting company for the VC. Uh, We'd raised money in creative ways through the recession, predominantly going to high net worth individuals. Uh, But honestly, I was running out of high net worth individuals to act and talk to about uh, investing in the company. So we we really had to find some sort of funding. We already had venture debt in place, so we'd use that avenue. And, uh, and so when we're talking to the VCs, it became apparent that timing might be an, an issue. While they were interested, they couldn't guarantee a time period that they would close because they had to close their fund first. In the course of that process, I was introduced to the CEO of a company that was a public company. They, they felt that their intellectual property was being infringed on. They litigated and they ended up with settlements and awards. They were a public company and no products. We were a, a private company with great product, but no money. And it just seemed like a solution that we should merge, which is how we came to doing a reverse merger. It was a funding event. So while I'd like to say it was a grand strategy, it was more opportunistic than it was a grand strategy um, to say this is a way that we can get capital and move to the next level. Now, now in hindsight, I would say that there is some strategy, but when you're VC funded, you also have to think about the life of their fund. And I've seen 
a lot of companies get into a bind where the VCs need to exit. And if the company is not in a position where it can go public, um, the only other viable exit is to sell the company. And, you know, their time drives that sale price, but they may not be able to wait until you're able to maximize that sales price without forcing a sale of the company, allowing us to build the value of the company and continue to grow. So there's a lot there that I just want to flesh out a little bit more, Karen. I mean, going back to 2008, what was that like? Uh, painful. Um, yeah, the uh, the direct conversation with the VCs when something like, at our milestone, we're ready for the next tranche of money. Um, we've built our inventory for launch. So that's actually how um, that into building a manufacturing uh, process. And the VC said, yep, you've done everything that we ask and there will be no money. So we're already at a low point in cash, finding out that there is no next influx of capital. And we had to make some very tough, very, very tough decisions. Uh, We're a small, close-knit team, and I laid half the people off. We closed the manufacturing facility we had just qualified uh, because we built all this inventory and I had nobody to sell it. So we said, well, we've just put money on the shelf. I I can't maintain the manufacturing operation. So we actually shuttered that, decided to, uh, and actually with a partner who actually very nicely agreed to store our equipment for a while. So they did do that. So that was nice. Uh, But we were still in a situation where we had to pick only the very most important things to keep the business going. And then it was a lot of, um, again, a team of people who banded together to say, no, this is something that's worth doing and we're going to stick it out. And I was very transparent and upfront um, and regularly talked about how much cash we had until, you know, we'd be bankrupt. That was actually a conversation we would openly talk about in the office because I knew everybody was speculating on it. So we might as well just talk about it. And people stuck by the team. Um, I only asked to say, if you are thinking about leaving because you feel you need to, to protect your family and your house, um, then just please tell me so that we've got a little bit of lead time and we can plan. But almost everybody stayed. Um, they felt, again, that it was something worthwhile that they were willing to do. We all worked really, really hard in an environment of lots of uncertainty. Um, but at the same time, I think built the foundation for the work that we're doing today and did it, you know, an amazing feat that we had accomplished. We didn't have very much money, but I gave the clinical team, I think it was $250,000 and said, okay, I need you to go out and start a clinical study. Now, for those of you who do clinical studies, that sounds like a lot of money until you realize clinical studies usually cost millions of dollars. And they figured out a way to put together what is now one of our most foundational uh, data sources. We call it the Ranger study that now has over 1,700 nerve repairs that we track outcomes and and look at how surgeons utilize um, the, the implants that we have in various types of nerve injuries. And it's been an extremely strategically important part of our building our business and it's something we actually started during that time period, 2008, and we had, we had no cash, but we felt that was important enough we'd invest in it. How were they able to magically make the $250,000 turn into a clinical study? Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it, so some really, really hard work, um, thinking about clinical trial design, and working with investigators where we went and said, you really have no data here, and we want you to partner with us. 
and so especially in the early days, we did not, we basically paid for data management, which meant that the people that house the data and manage it and make sure that it's secure and nobody's playing with the, with the data. Um, but we didn't uh, pay for data collection, which meant at the site, the hospital and the surgeons basically had to do it on their own time. They also were very interested in this unmet need and were willing to chip in and basically partner with us to see if we could create something. And, uh, and so it was a shared partnership of, um, of, of building something that everybody needed. When did the company decide to take the step of going to high net worth individuals to help finance what the company was doing? As soon as I heard the VCs that currently were investing in the company really couldn't um, put money going forward uh, into the company, continue to fund us. You, you have to look around and think of where where can I get capital? You know, it's not an exhaustive list. You can go to uh, angel networks. You can go to high net worth individuals. Um, even if you're you know wealthy, you can go to your, your own bank account, your, your friends and family. Um, you can do different types of debt, in particular venture debt in very early stages. So we did venture debt. That was one thing we did uh, and made sure we had uh, right away some terms that would give us a, uh, some money to move forward. And then, you know, honestly, I checked down the list and said, well, environmentally, my hypothesis was that high net worth individuals were probably not really happy with their money managers right then because they'd all lost money in the market and that they were taking a more active role in their management of their funds. And so they would be receptive to talking to me. And I, I wanted to make sure that I also went to people who were interested in healthcare and somewhat knowledgeable about healthcare. This was as much about doing something that was good for patients as it was um, about was making an investment in an, uh, in an emerging company. And at that time, again, going back to what was happening then, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were going on and wounded warriors were coming home with devastating nerve injuries and no options for repair. And because of the extent of their injuries, there weren't enough nerves to transplant to even fix what they had. And the military was finding the, the solutions that we had just a game changer for these wounded warriors. And so that was also impactful for these high net worth individuals who really felt that they were doing something both to help uh, and make an investment in a, in a growing company and, and to help the advancement of this in healthcare, but also more specifically to advance the medical treatment for these wounded warriors. And, and so uh, they were receptive to that. And that was the approach that, uh, that we ended up taking. Um, I tried to get introduced to as many people as I could. I in particular had some board members who were very helpful. Um, introducing us to a number of people who then introduced us to more people. And that's how we ended up uh, doing a lot of the funding of the company. So did you ever have doubts during that period? I mean, did you ever have any emotional exhaustion or did you just keep your head down and plow through? I am more of the personality type that just says, nope, we're just going to get it done. We're going to go in and fight and survive. And so I didn't dwell on doubts. And so um, I was more concerned about making sure that I resolved the doubts of our team. And so that's why I said my, my style was to be very transparent, very open, very clear on our direction, um, very clear on what we could and couldn't do. Again, we were really structured on where we spent money uh, because every penny had to be uh, use, useful. <laughs> Just We didn't have any pennies that were extra. Every penny had to be useful. 
but I don't, I really didn't have doubts. I really truly believed that we had something distinct and unique um, that would be successful in the end. And then it was on me to just find the path and, and solve it. It's, it's interesting. I'm an engineer by, um, by training and uh, I've never, to be honest, been an engineer, but I think still engineering teaches you um, a thought process and a belief that every problem has a solution. There was a solution. I just had to find it. So I didn't dwell on doubts. I was more focused on where's the solution. So then fast forward to September 2011 with the merger, you're now a public company. Did you have any previous experience with the capital markets or running a public company? No, I just knew um, from talking to everybody I talked to, they said, they said, wow, public companies, those are really hard. But I didn't even know what hard was. To try and educate myself, I called about a dozen CEOs of of small cap public companies who had recently moved into the public markets and asked them about what they had learned in that transition, what they would have wished they could have done differently, and what were the watchouts. And it was, it was very helpful for me. I first of all, really appreciate people's generosity. I've always found people are willing to teach and help sort of the next generation behind them. And so these folks were just really generous to give me a little bit of their time and tell me things to think about and informative. I think some of the things that they said was you have been really focused on building your business and surviving. Now you're going to need to be thinking about quarterly results, about telling people what you're going to do and then doing what you told them. And that's just a different cadence of how you operate than what you've done a private company. They also said that not there'll be a change for you as a CEO but it's also a change for your whole staff. And not everyone will make that journey and that leap. And that's actually what we found as well, was that is great for some people, very comfortable, and other people come back and go, you know, I just I don't like this. So people have to decide where do they fit, and not everybody who's been in the private market is gonna survive. So those were all changes that we, we had to weather through. Now, I had one tremendous benefit in that the CEO of the company we merged with was an SEC attorney. Huge leg up for me because he basically taught me the rules of being a CEO of a public company because I, I really had just no idea what you could and couldn't do. I was sort of, you know, the layman's perspective of things you couldn't do, but then they weren't really the understanding of what you really have to do or how things get done. And so Greg Freitag uh, was originally going to do this merger and then go off to some other deal. And I asked him to stay on as our general counsel. So even as a very small company, he joined our team as an in-house general counsel, which I think um, and would advise other people following down this path. If you don't have the public market experience, have in-house SEC general counsel who can help you make that transition and teach what, what that means. And uh, Greg is still with us as our general counsel, but uh, he's been my partner since the merger in understanding the capital markets and really training the team on the aspects of the market-facing activities. 
Can you talk a little bit about Greg's lessons or tips that he gave you or the things that he was sort of pointing out to you and the team? One of the things that I struggled with is like, well, I don't know, there's all these rules about what I can and can't say to educate the investment community about us. We're in a market they've never heard of in a company they've never heard of. And they want to know more about us, yet I don't understand what I can and can't say. It was a good schooling to think about, uh, obviously talking about results that have already happened. So the prior quarter that you've already talked about, or enthusiasm and emotions about the future, but not, you know, think about very specific uh, guidance and no other, no other numerical uh, comments, which is different than the way you talk with VCs. With VCs, you're very forward-looking, and you're giving a almost a strategic plan overview with them. And so I had to adjust how I communicated to the potential investment community to what the, the public markets would expect and what would be the norm. And, and so that was very helpful for Greg to do that. And also speaking about what's the right level and tiers of investors that we should be talking to. At that time, again, we're a sub $3 stock. So many firms, um, their compliance office doesn't want them to provide um, equities that are below $3 and below $100 million market cap. And so you had to understand who are you interacting with and whether they're actually just interested for someday in the future or they're able to be involved and trade uh, in the stock now and, and whether that's going to fit into their investment plans. And so just from a use of time standpoint, Greg, when having us think about who are we interacting with and are they short-term, are they long-term, and what's the right mix? I mean, so was this sort of on-the-job kind of learning, or was there anything else that you had, anyone that you maybe had in your corner who really sort of helped you hit your stride? I think a lot of people have helped along the way, but um, there have been several people, I think, that were helpful to help me frame, uh, in my mind, what, what we should be positioning to the marketplace one of the early investors, he left and, and went to another fund, uh, and actually a quant fund, so it's not something that would invest in Axigen. And ultimately, he became an advisor to us to help me. I'm more of a marketing person, so I want to know, how does my audience think? Um, what is it that is a motivator or drives them? And so I, I think like a marketing person, but in the public markets, you can't always go ask that question. Well, now I had a real-life person. I could go say, well, I think like this, things like that. Don't say that. That just sounds risky. Oh, really? It sounds risky. So he would give me real feedback about how investors, uh, at, again, at different levels of funds, how they think and how they hear information when you communicate it. And it's really helped us own our messaging. Um, and then another person who came in, um, one of our uh, analysts um, joined our firm as our VP of IR, Kayla Crum. And uh, Kayla was very helpful because she could take that perspective of someone who's looked at lots and lots of companies, has talked to lots of companies, has written about lots of companies, and can help, again, help us shape our message and our content so that people will hear what we want them to understand. Okay, I want to get into some more nuts and bolts, um, specifically about sort of small cap life sciences companies. Obviously, a key issue is the fact that it costs a lot of money to get a treatment or a drug approved, which usually means a lot of financings that can really impair the capital structure. Can you talk about specifically what helped you avoid this fate? I think um, it does take, healthcare in particular takes a lot of capital to get to cash flow break even because of all of the 
the work you have to do on the development side, and then a fairly long tail in commercialization and change um, in, in particular in surgery and surgeons' behavior. And so you have to think uh, about your capital usage and, first of all, internally, be very structured in prioritization. Good, creative, small cap companies often have many more ideas than they can actually execute on. And so you've got to make sure that as a company, you're clear on your goals and what you're trying to accomplish and that you invest internally uh, your activities, both headcount and dollars in the things that support those goals rather than interesting things that may suck capital. And then, and then I think it is understanding and thinking about uh, how you're going to raise money so that you're continuing to do this in a way that adds value to your existing investors. So the so you're really thinking about a valuation raise as you go along. And for us, um, our real inflection point was in 2015. We were pretty cash starved. So we did the uh, reverse merger in 2011. We did, we uplisted to NASDAQ in 2013. So, it, you know, sort of a pseudo IPO. And we did that in 2013, but it was still a very small raise overall. And in 2015, a couple of things happened. Um, we did a, a public raise, but we had a couple of investors that came in that I would consider to be more signal investors to the rest of the uh, investment community. So Deerfield in our public raise and then also bought in the public market. And then Essex Woodlands came in and did a, a pipe um, in the latter part of the year. And both of those are firms that I think a lot of other healthcare investors watch and look to see what they're investing in because they do a tremendous amount of due diligence. They go into what the the technology is and the risks are and the management team and the market opportunity and they, they interview surgeons and they do market research. And when they've done all of that, it, I think it gave confidence to much of the other investment community that there's something real here. Uh, again, in a market nobody's heard of and in a company nobody's heard of. And so when Essex Woodlands did their investment shortly followed after the Deerfield investment, we went from this sort of $3 stock to above a $5 stock and then started on a, a nice trajectory of growth, both delivering from results. So we continue to deliver uh, good growth, but also with, uh, with confidence from investors being able to look at some thought leaders. So can you talk about that period from 2011 until mid 2015 and sort of, you know, what the company was working on during that period and what your mentality was with regards to, you know, the capital markets and how to interact with investors? Well, we were pretty small in 2011. And so the most important thing in the 2011 timeframe was to show that we could get reproducible commercial results. So again, if you remember, I'd said we had literally three territories. So that's really small. <laughs> and so in 2011, we scaled up to 10 territories, which is still really small. <laughs> so it's very hard to get consistent results when you have such a small number of territories. If somebody goes on vacation, you actually see it in the sales results. You really need to get a little bit of scale and a little bit more consistent pipeline uh, from a commercialization standpoint to stop risk of ups and downs that are not representative of the overall curve. And so we focused 2011 to 2013 really zeroing in on that commercial execution 
and making sure that we were really hitting the ground running with that. Now, during that time period, we also added a couple of important products. So we had recognized that uh, Advanced Nerve Graft, which is our flagship product, the one for the gaps between nerve ends, was a phenomenal product. But there's, there are times that the surgeons have a different problem. They may not have a gap between the nerve ends. And we introduced the Exaguard Nerve Connector. We'd uh, done some development work before that, but we finally had an, enough commercial capability to get that into the marketplace, as well as the Axigard nerve connector. And those were important additions so that now we had a full algorithm as we're commercializing. We're not coming in just trying to sell them something, help them solve whatever problem they may have. And we had a nice array of solution sets with the three products to be able to help surgeons with virtually all of the things they would run into in, uh, in injured peripheral nerves. And then 2013 to 2015, we started to think about how to, now how do we scale not just our commercial activities, but the whole company. And as companies, you know, obviously grow, um, everything grows. Your manufacturing grows. You want to invest in product development. You start to think about clinical applications. And so we started to think about expanding into additional market applications um, we made the choice to bias our emphasis initially in our pocket applications because it's faster to market than new products. We now do both in our pipeline, but we uh, could take our existing products and apply them to nerve injuries in areas beyond trauma. So we started in oral and maxillofacial surgery. That's where uh, patients in oral surgery, uh, like in a dental procedure where the nerves are injured and the patient is permanently numb on that half of the mouth. And it can happen in wisdom tooth extraction, in putting in dental implants, in mandible reconstruction, or a variety of other types of procedures. Very small percentage. I don't want to scare everybody that it happens all the time. But uh, often enough that there's a, there's a real need to help these patients return to having sensation. And uh, and so that was the first expansion area that we'd moved into beyond uh, beyond the traumatic injuries. And we felt that it helped to show, again, a proof of principle that nerves are injured all over the body. And we'd started in one segment, but we could start to expand into other areas by taking our, again, our existing products just to a new user base and teaching them nerve repair. Um, we also started to think about how do we cross the chasm? So crossing the chasm is a long process, but it's a, a philosophy that markets change with innovators and early first trying a product. But the big middle are hesitant to, to do something until that they know it's proven, that, that the bugs are worked out, that there's not going to be uh, concerns, that there's, that it's going to be um, paid for, that there's in healthcare, that it would be reimbursed. Um, and frankly, that it's not something experimental. It's got to be normal. So we work to start to build the foundational elements to be able to be ready to cross the chasm to the middle adopters. And that was a big uh, piece of work that we started to put in place. And frankly, we're still working on that's the stage we're at is how do you get through the chasm and through the, to the middle adopters. I mean, one of the other issues that it seems like a lot of life sciences companies get stuck in is, you know, selling their product, ramping sales, getting into enough channels while not blowing through cash. I mean, can you talk about how you were able to avoid that? Yeah, yeah. It's the most important thing is don't run out of money. <laughs> so we're very clear about that. Um, yeah, that that is how companies fail. And a lot of healthcare companies fail, frankly, because they run out of capital. 
Um, so we were really cognizant of that and said, um, actually, our first priority is patient safety and our second priority is don't run out of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good. We uh, we planned. You know, I, again, I would say I, I give credit to the team that we, we've learned to do without on a lot of things. And anything that we do, we figure out what we want to do. Um, and then we figure out what's the most efficient way that we can get to that endpoint. So that's a, a balance of spend and quality of output. So you don't want to be so inexpensive that you don't get a robust, for example, a robust clinical study that doesn't do any good or, or an education event that isn't impactful. So you've got to be able to spend enough money to do that, but without going over the top and, and spending money needlessly. Um, we also believe in certain things. We have a list of, um, from a culture standpoint, we have a list of things we call our oxygenic values. It is the how we work, and it is it, it pretty much means head down, running hard towards our objectives, working together as a team, but also passionate debate to resolve issues so we resolve them in the best way. But actually, then finally, one of our values is fun. Um, so periodically, we actually shut everything down in the company and we have a fun day, um, which is not particularly a lot of money, but it brings everybody together and reminds them that we're still working together as a team cross-functionally and towards the same goal. And even though it, it at times feels like we're in a dead run to get to that objective, we can still pause and interact together to really as a group. And I think that makes a difference. I think that keeps the team aligned and focused. Can you talk about your board, Karen, and the individuals that make up the board? And I saw that there were a couple of new directors added. Can you talk about how you found them and basically how you just get the most out of this group of people? The board's an important part of our uh, our success in our business process. Uh, I use the board as our sounding board and advisor. So they have they certainly have a fiduciary responsibility for the shareholders, but they are also an advisor group to us. And we try and use their strengths both collectively and individually to help advise um, decisions that we'll make. And so when we look at the board makeup, we as a board think about um, what are the skill sets that we want to make sure are there so that a voice is represented. So, for example, we've added uh, Alan Levine as the CEO of a, of a hospital system uh, to help bring that voice of the, of the provider uh, into our thinking and decision-making. Uh, hospitals buy our products. They're the ones who actually purchase them. Surgeons use them, but hospitals buy them. And I, I think that would be a very helpful voice as we think about our trajectory forward. So I found the board to be a really wonderful sounding board. Um, we want to make sure we have people with good operational experience, uh, but also make sure that we bring in the, the governance perspective so that we're keeping a close eye on risk from an operating company, be focused on what your goal is and not be thinking about extra things around you. Uh, we want to make sure that we have the right governance structure so that we're thinking about the environmental risk and making sure that those thoughts are inserted into the operating strategies that, that my team is putting together to just make sure we have a perspective on it and that we're prepared uh, where there might be things that could derail a plan. Uh, things of not of our making, right? Uh, you know, if the market goes south, um, what would we do? Do we have a plan? And and so those are the sorts of things that I found the board to be very helpful in is making sure that uh, they have a think about 
things in a different way than we would and use their experience to make us better. Is there anything that you've done as a CEO that you would want a do-over on? Um, yeah, there's probably always been little things that I would do over again. Um, the hardest thing for me as a CEO has been hiring mistakes. Um, it, you know, when you hire somebody, especially the senior team, um, it's a big decision. You're really counting on them being able to integrate well and gel with the team and use their expertise to help the, the process forward. And that works great when it works great. Unfortunately, when you've if you've made a mistake in hiring, it can really be disruptive to the team. And that's probably the thing I find the hardest is um, when we brought somebody who just doesn't fit into, into the team. Fortunately, we haven't had a whole lot of that. So that's been good uh, that we, for the most part, have had a phenomenal group of people that we've, uh, that we've brought in, but where somebody hasn't fit in, um, it, you know, it's something I wish we'd figured out ahead of time. That's probably the biggest thing. And I think overall, I'm pretty happy with the trajectory um, that Oxygen has been on, notwithstanding that we had to survive the recession. But that wasn't of our making, and we survived it. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but beyond that, I think we've really made some good, solid choices. And um, I, I don't think I have a, I don't think I have regrets on the on the choices we've made. With that note, for anyone who wants more background on these technologies, there's a lot more information on the company website, www.oxygeninc.com. Karen, thank you so much for being with Small Cap Institute. It's a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening. Small Cap Institute is the first and only comprehensive content library and collaborative forum specifically for small cap executives and board members. For more information, visit us at smallcapinstitute.com.